Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It is good to be with you. I hope you're doing all right out there. Happy Thanksgiving. I have a great show for you. My guest today is Kyle Spencer, author of a new book called Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. But in the beginning, my, my thinking was, my answer always to like, things that they were saying that I found disgusting it was, tell me more. Why do you think that? How did you get there? That was what I would, I just felt like my, I, I felt like I had the reader on my, you know, on my shoulder and I was just trying to get this person to explain who they were and what they believed in because if I could do that, then, then we could help <laughs> stop people like this, you know? But I needed, to, I needed to tell people who they were and what they were doing. Okay. That was Kyle Spencer, author of a new book called Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. It is available now from Echo Books. Kyle Spencer is an award-winning journalist. Her work appears frequently in the New York Times. She has also written for New York Magazine, Slate, The Daily Beast, The Washington Post, Politico, and elsewhere. And in this new book of hers, she is investigating the world of young people who are working for the cause of conservatism or ultra-conservatism. And in particular, she examines the lives and careers of three key players in the conservative youth movement. Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA, Candace Owens, a conservative pundit and media personality, and Cliff Maloney who for a time ran an organization called Young Americans for Liberty. It's a libertarian group funded in part by the Koch brothers. Maloney is now the CEO of a company that he founded called Mobilize the Message, which helps conservative candidates 
with their get-out-the-vote efforts, among other things. And then, additionally, Raising Them Right does a great job of illuminating how the donor class of the Republican Party, the multimillionaires and the billionaires like the Koch brothers or the late Foster Freeze, how these people bankroll these youth groups, often in the shadows, and help to organize them and mentor them and supercharge and perpetuate efforts to cultivate young people and bring them into the conservative fold. So this is a very fascinating book, and for me anyway, it was unsettling at times, and it appeals to my inner political junkie, and it helped me to understand the machinery of contemporary right-wing politics, how all of it actually works, and what the future might hold. So my conversation with investigative reporter Kyle Spencer is coming up in just a bit. Quickly, a few orders of business. My email newsletter goes out once a week. You can sign up for that at this show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up at my website, bradlisty.com. It is a reminder of each week's new episode, and I also share some things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you want to sign up for my email newsletter, again, it is free, and it's once a week. The Other People podcast aired its 800th episode last week, and There are no paywalls on this show. It is offered freely. The entire archive is made available to listeners for free. So I am counting on people who listen regularly and people who find this show valuable to support it. If you are out there and you fall into one of these categories, I hope you will consider visiting patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. I am sensitive to the fact that there are people with varying budgets and financial situations out there. So I've tried to make it as easy as possible to support this show. $1 a month, or $3, or 5 or 10 or 20 or whatever you can swing to support this show and help keep it going. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I would greatly appreciate your support. The Other People podcast has a YouTube channel. It has had one for a long time. The entire archive of this program can be found on YouTube, but there is one significant change in recent weeks. This program is now on video. You can watch these interviews on the Other People YouTube channel. So if that appeals to you, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and you can watch me interview Kyle Spencer. Likewise, the Other People podcast now has a TikTok presence. I have to admit, I have no idea what I'm doing. I am posting clips from the interviews on TikTok each week. So if you're a TikTok person, and you want to humor me, follow the show. I believe it is at otherppl.podcast. That's the TikTok handle. Last but not least, I have a book out. It's a novel. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It published earlier this year, and it is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. If you would like to read my novel, you can do that, or you can listen to me read it to you. I'm the narrator of the audiobook. Uh, one more time, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Today's episode of the Other People Podcast is made possible by Red Hen Press, publisher of the story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home, by Pete Sue, who incidentally was the guest on this program just last week. If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home won the Red Hen Press Fiction Award. And you can get it right now. You can get 20% off of this book and your entire order for a limited time over at Bookstore 
bookstore.redhen.org. Again, it's bookstore.redhen.org. Go there, order uh, Pete Sue's book or whatever else, and then use the offer code OTHERPPL and get 20% off of your order. Red Hen Press is the largest and oldest nonprofit independent publishing company in Los Angeles. It publishes poetry, creative nonfiction, memoirs, novels, and so on. Red Hen Press is devoted to diversity in publishing. It offers five annual publication awards, and it accepts unagented submissions of manuscripts. Red Hen Press offers dozens of in-person and hybrid literary events each year, and it invites those people who find themselves in the Los Angeles area to visit the Hen House Literary Center in Pasadena. For more information about Red Hen Press, visit redhen.org. And remember, get your copy of Pete Sue's new story collection, If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home, and get 20% off at bookstore.redhen.org. Just use the offer code OTHERPPL. So my guest once again is Kyle Spencer, investigative journalist and author of a new book called Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. It is available now from Echo Books. As I was saying at the top of the show, I feel like this is a really timely conversation in light of the recent midterm elections here in the States and with the 2024 election now in sight. Kyle Spencer is telling an important story about contemporary politics in this country and how it works and what the future might hold. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I found it really fascinating and unsettling and insightful. So without any further preamble, here is my conversation with Kyle Spencer and her book, One More Time, is called Raising Them Right, the untold story of America's ultra-conservative youth movement and its plot for power. So I was an education reporter and I was writing mostly for the New York Times and I was on and off college campuses all the time. And I started to see these gun rights groups setting up tables on usually large state schools and they were pushing this gun rights legislation, which I, I think at this point is something like 16 states have passed this gun rights legislation that allows guns on college campuses, and there are many more in the pipeline. And they were trying to convince me that they were doing this of their own volition, that this was like their own effort. And I didn't believe them. I just figured there's got to be something behind this. And I started looking through tax documents and budgets and organization annual reports. And I discovered that these groups were actually being funded by the NRA and Gun Owners of America. And that got me thinking, if there are these gun rights groups that are being funded by these big heavy hitters, there's got to be other right wing groups that are doing that. And of course, I found there were that campuses nowadays are inundated with heavily, heavily funded right wing groups that a lot of people think are just young kids doing their thing and, and they're not. Yeah, I, this was that's one of the functions that your book performed for me, because I think I had a passing awareness of at least two of the people that you profile heavily, uh, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens, who, you know, wind up on social media feeds of mine somehow. You know, I see their names or see them mentioned in the press or whatever. There's also Cliff Maloney. We're gonna talk about all of these people uh, and the organizations that they represent or uh, have worked with in the past. But I didn't 
understand how all of the puzzle pieces fit together. And it makes a lot of the political machinery, especially, you know, the right wing political machinery from the top down make more sense to me. Uh, can you talk about how you landed on, I guess we just start with Charlie Kirk, because I think he's probably, mm -hmm. I guess he's probably the most prominent figure in the, in the media universe. Yeah, so when I first started reporting on the book, um, I, I didn't even really know I had a book. I, I, I realized that these gun rights groups were just one of many, many groups. And so I decided that I would go to the top to figure out where this all kind of started. What was the umbrella organization? And I found the Leadership Institute, which is a training academy for these youth groups. And once I spent some time with the Leadership Institute, I began to sort of plug into different groups, Young Americans for Liberty, Young Americans for Freedom, campus carry groups, uh, which are these pro-gun groups, libertarian groups, and Turning Point USA. And so once I found that these all these other groups were there, and I literally found them through the kids, I would sit in these Leadership Institute classes, and in the breaks while we were eating sandwiches or pizza, I would ask them about this was their interest and how else did they express this interest. And they would tell me about their groups. And I was interested. You know, and that was interest that was appealing to them. And so they invited me to come to some of their conferences. And then I went to their conferences. And that's how I ended up seeing that who Charlie discovering that Charlie Kirk was a powerful player in this whole arena. And of course, for those who don't know him, he runs Turning Point USA and he founded it in 2012. And it's now I think they made, you know, 50 million dollars last year to, to give out and to do their stuff. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, so let's go to the Leadership Institute because I think in terms of the way that your book is structured, the Leadership Institute isn't mentioned until like further into the book. But yeah. really, it it's kind of ground zero for all this stuff. Yeah. And there's a, a character, a gentleman named Morton Blackwell, who founded it. And can you do explain to my listeners who he is a little yeah. bit? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, 
just as a kind of understanding this young this this new conservative youth movement that we see today was started in the 1960s it was started in um when goldwater was running for president and won the republican national got on the republican national ticket and became rep, the the delegate for the republicans and lost to lyndon johnson but all of these young people had been so excited about Goldwater. Goldwater was dynamic. He hated the press. He, a lot of people accused him of being racist. He was, he hated the establishment. And these young people loved his, his, his verve and his energy. So when he lost, they were devastated. And instead of giving up, a bunch of them literally moved to Washington to basically continue Goldwater's new conservative movement, but without him. And they started different organizations. And these people that are that did this are pretty well known for people who study the right wing. Paul Weyrich is one of them, who was a Christian, who started a bunch of different organizations. And Morton Blackwell was also one of them. And Morton, and so each one of them kind of took a different angle, like I'm going to do this, you're going to do this. And some of them focused on messaging, some of them focused on organizing. And Morton Blackwell decided that he was going to focus on training, and that if they were going to build this new conservative movement to kind of take back the country from progressives because of course Lyndon Johnson represented like the epitome of progressivism they were going to have to train young people and he started this organization called the Leadership Institute which last year made 25 something million dollars to train young people on how to organize door knock nowadays it's social media run for school board fundraise Anything that has to do with Republican politicking, you can learn at the Leadership Institute. And thousands of kids go through the Leadership Institute every year. And every, I would be hard pressed to find an, a conservative or a powerful Republican today who did not go through the Leadership Institute. Mitch McConnell, for example, as I point out in the book, calls Morton Blackwell, who founded it, his professor. Tucker Carlson. Laura well, wait, wait, wait. I, I want to say we should say Mitch McConnell was part of the inaugural graduating class. Yes, of part of the inaugural Institute. graduating class. He was one of the first. Um, but then people nowadays that we know a lot about, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Dinesh D'Souza. I mean, just about anybody that is a powerful figure has gone through this, this training and considers Morton Blackwell to be a very important mentor. And so you went to the Leadership Institute? Yeah. Like, so as, a, as a reporter or were you undercover? <laughs> I went as a reporter. I never did any of this undercover. And I think that's an important thing. People always ask me, like, how did, first of all, they go, thank you so much for doing this. I didn't want to do this, but I wanted to know what was was going on in this part of the world. But then people ask me, well, how did you, how did you get them to, how did you convince them? So once I got home, I understood that there were a lot of these groups and I did figured out that the Leadership Institute was training a lot of their members. I started a letter campaign. I started writing, emailing, writing, calling the Leadership Institute and saying, I'm a journalist. I am interested. I, I, I come from the liberal bubble. I voted for Bernie Sanders. Uh, and then, you know, then Hillary Clinton and the general and, and I in, in 16. I, um, I'm fascinated by what you do and how you organize young people. I want to come and I want to, I want to see this in action. So you were trans, so you were, you were transparent about your politics. Totally transparent. But crickets, crickets. No. I wrote again. I called. I had a conversation eventually with somebody at the Leadership Institute. We'll think about it. Had another conversation. And I was genuinely interested 
and I was genuinely impressed and fascinated by what they were doing and I made that very clear and I think ultimately that was flattering to them and so they let me in and they invited me to a weekend a 48 hour training sort of the the 101 that they require everybody to do if they want to continue taking classes there and so they invited me to that and I did it okay so let's paint a picture for my listeners what is it yeah. like to walk into the 101 boot camp at the Leadership Institute where they're kind of teaching the next generation of conservative activists how to do it what, what does it look like what does it feel like what do they teach you so you go into this, it's in the outskirts of DC and you go into this building and there's a marble lo lobby and you go upstairs and on one floor there's a bust of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and um, yeah, and on a another, and then on another floor, there are photos of every single person, every single prominent person that has gone through the program. So you see all these senators and all these representatives and you, you know, you see that, so you see Tucker Carlson, you see Laura Ingram, you see, you know, Mike Pence. And so you, you see that. And then there are these classrooms and they look a little bit like conference rooms. That's kind of what they are. And I walked into one and it was packed. And the kids are dressed in conservative wear. You know, some of them are kind of dorky homeschoolers and they look like they're wearing handmade clothes and other ones look like sort of preppy Tucker Carlson wannabes and they're sort of, you know, wearing their suits and ties. But everybody's kind of dressed pretty nicely. And it's a Saturday morning. It's a Saturday morning in, I think it was June. And this era, the interns are starting to populate DC. And so all these interns are getting their hair done and getting and going out for brunch and getting ready to go party that night. And here are, you know, a hundred young people getting ready to be, you know, like taught the nuts and bolts of organizing. So it was, it's an intense group of kids and there are tons of them because they fill these rooms up all the time. I sat down and they started the program. And they just have one person after another. It's about 30 minutes at a time. And they do one lesson after another. How to this, how to that, how to campaign, how to table, how to talk, how to use face Facebook to recruit people on it. And then they do workshops. And what happens is they, after a lesson, they ask everybody questions. And when somebody raises their hand and they get the answer right, they either throw them a piece of candy or they say, what book do you want? And they have a, a table filled with conservative books. Many of them, you know, I have here bi biographies of Ronald Reagan, conservative books by conservative economists, and they'll and you choose a book and you get one. And so at one point, uh, somebody got the answer right. And they the guy who was giving the, the lesson of that moment threw a piece of candy. And then he said, oh, uh, don't hit the reporter. You know, or there's the person next to him said, don't hit the reporter. And of course the candy did hit me, but it was like a weird moment for me in understanding how much kind of like disdain they had for me on some level, even though they were sort of happy I was there. Yeah, it is a strange relationship between like they they clearly like figures like Charlie and Cliff and Candace love to have media attention and yet, you know, have sort of adopted this uh, attitude that is uh, predominates in conservative circles nowadays uh, with this deep mistrust of the media. And I, I got to say, too, while we're on the topic of the Leadership Institute, the, the laughable fact that it is technically a 501c3 and so must be, quote unquote, nonpartisan, right? I mean, this is 
This is a joke. This yeah. is a, this is not a nonpartisan organization. And no, yet- and they're really careful there when they do their um, when they're talking and when they're talking to journalists and even when they're talking to other people. They 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 talk about conservatism. They don't talk about uh, you know republicanism or republicans. Even though the the one of the one of the heads of the institute ended up working for Donald Trump during two, in 2016. So it's a joke. It's a total joke. But they get away with it. I don't know how they get away with it, but they do. Wait, who who worked for Trump? Who was a leadership? person it was one of the it was one of the guys i mean he, he's not he does not play a prominent role in the book oh. so he's just but it's one of the yeah okay so uh just to kind of give listeners like orientation i want to have like the the constellation of figures that you're profiling in the book kind of laid out we have charlie kirk who is a young kid from i think wheeling illinois mm-hmm. who somehow is conservative you know like from youth like from the jump and I think there are maybe social dynamics and socioeconomic dynamics at play. You know, his sub- the suburban milieu that he's from is rapidly changing. He's a minority in his public high school. I think that might have something to do with it. I'm not, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of pin it down precisely, but that makes some sense to me that he's in this rapidly changing social milieu at his school and is maybe just naturally a contrarian or something. But he goes on to found Turning Point USA. And I guess before we go to the next person, we should say a little bit about how that happened. He wanted to go to West Point, but got rejected, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then he was going to go to Baylor University, which is a, a, a nice, like, hotbed of conservative values, right? It's a great place for a young conservative to go. But before he goes there... He meets up with a, a guy named Bill Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Do I have this timeline correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so talk yeah, about the relationship. Well. Talk about the relationship between Bill Montgomery and Charlie Kirk. So Bill Montgomery is a ret- a guy who's just retired. He's conservative. He was one of these activists during the Tea Party movement, which remember started in Chicago. And he is kind of looking for something to do. And he loves mentoring young people, and particularly in the political realm. And he goes to an event that Charlie is speaking at as he's trying to sort of like hone his own political skills and his own speaking skills. And he is wowed by Charlie. And he has tried to start organizations in the past and none of them have really taken off. And so he looks at Charlie, I think, and he says this and thinks this guy is the future. We could really do something big together. And he partners with him and he basically drives Charlie around the suburban Chicago suburbs get for months getting him gigs where he stands up on stages or in front of, you know, in front of audiences at these hotels and talks to them about why they should support young conservatives and help him to grow this movement of young conservatives. So in Charlie, um, Charlie decides not to go to college. Like he does he this. he decides not to go to college because he gets so excited about this and that, that this actually start, starts to sort of work. The thing it's like really important about the relationship that, that Bill Montgomery has with Charlie is one of the reasons I ended up writing the book because it's a very typical kind of relationship that conservatives have um, where younger people are mentored in a very, very tight-knit way with elders. Uh, you don't see this that much with Democrats. You you see 
you see something that's a lot less formalized and often you see kind of hostilities and mistrust and distrust but there is this it's a it's a type of it's a tradition and it's a kind of cultural it's just a cultural ethos of having young people being really guided guided by older older politicos in the in the movement so that th this brings us to cliff maloney who for a, for a time ran the what's called the young americans for liberty which is another one of these organizations that appears on college campuses all over the place and which is quietly funded by the Koch brothers, correct? Yeah, and other and a lot of other libertarian organizations and or wealthy corporatists. Okay. And so Cliff Maloney is a working class guy from Philadelphia. His father served time in prison, mm -hmm. kind of bootstrapped his own landscaping company. But a hard yeah. scrabble, a hard scrabble upbringing. You know, this is mm -hmm. not somebody who is to the manner born. No, and not at all. wound up becoming at a very young age the head of Young Americans for Liberty. And again, at a very young age, became very activated by conservative politics. Can you, can you just draw a little bit for my listeners, yeah. his, bio yeah. his biography? Yeah. And he's, a, you know, it's funny because when I talk about the book, uh, people want to hear about Charlie. They want to hear about Candace. And people are not as interested in Cliff, even though and I think it's just because they don't know him. But Cliff was really, to me, the most fascinating person in this entire situation. He came from blue collar Philadelphia suburbs, and he was a kind of J.D. Vance figure. He was a guy who was around a lot of poor people who were on public assistance. And he felt like the government didn't help these people and that those who kind of sat there and wanted handouts were not taking care of themselves. And that in the face of poverty and in the face of struggle, one had to just rely on family members and, and as you pointed out, bootstrap it, just take care of, of, of yourself. And so he goes to, he is the first person in his family to go to college. He goes to a Pennsylvania State University and decides he wants to be a teacher. And he also, while in college, starts organizing, uh, he, he decides he's a libertarian and he starts organizing a libertarian group and then gets himself to Washington to do an internship and with, with Ron Paul and then just gets really really deep into the movement okay He's so wait I, I need to i need to interrupt yeah. you i need to interrupt you just because he interns for ron paul senior yeah who is in the context of american libertarianism like the godfather like he's the, the one. godfather he's like yeah and um and he um yes and he, and and just to back up a little bit cliff is uh, is president of his university and he's on one of these Penn State campuses, and he's he, uh, Johnstown is the is where it is, and he is like a fabulous politician. And I and I write about this in the book how he maneuvers his win and how he gets people behind him and how he's just like he clearly loves it. He loves it and he is good at it. So when he gets to Washington D.C. and he interns at in Ron Paul's office and as you pointed out Ron Paul is just like the demigod of these these libertarians he's or not even he's more like a wise sage father or something right and cliff just a is falls in love with him and develops a close bond with him as is as i pointed out is a kind of common common denominator in a lot of these um scenarios 
And he also sees all the wheeling and dealing that he was doing on a very low level on his college campus. He could do in DC. And that they, he catches the bug. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you say that he's so skilled because it seems to me, and forget you know, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, but like you know, Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens, I think their great gift maybe is as media figures and communicators. Cliff is like a tactician. He's got yeah. more of like the Mitch McConnell in him, like strategic, yeah, yeah, like exactly. the door knocking, the relationship building, the favor trading, all the stuff of like behind the scenes, actual political power. He really has a knack for. Yeah, and he, um, and exactly, and 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 as an aside, you know, when you talk to people who know Charlie Kirk and work closely with him, Charlie Kirk can't get himself out of a paper bag. Charlie Kirk is one of these guys who can't organize things. He's like, you know, he is not a a uh, a uh, 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 leader in that sense at all. And so he has other people working for him who do all of the back behind the scenes work, and he is the front guy. And he's pretty bright on one, on some level, but a lot of the way in which his organization has grown in prominence is really due to a lot of the people behind the scenes, uh, a lot of the operators behind the scenes. But Cliff is, yeah, Cliff is a, is, a, is, a, is a behind the scenes operator. And he, and this is another thing that people might find interesting, is even though these groups may present as pretty unified, behind the scenes, they, they don't like each other. And Cliff would, you know, make these comments that were not openly disdainful of Charlie, but he believed that Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk were about the show, and he was about real politicking. And we, and, you know, we can talk about that, the kind of what what was the real politicking he was doing. But well, you draw a, a great comparison. You know, it's a it's a a distilled way of thinking about Turning Point versus Young Americans for Liberty. You're like on campus, Turning Point was tending to tell young people that they could get as they should be able to get as rich as they want with no interference from the government whereas young americans for liberty was telling young people they should be able to do whatever they want yeah, which is yeah. the more which is like the more doctrinaire libertarian stance like yeah. just don't yeah. just leave me alone i can do whatever the you know whatever the hell i want and uh i, I think that that you know it's worth noting too when it comes to young americans for liberty that you know, he was Cliff and that organization were really actively involved in a state by state, local election by local election way in trying to put mm -hmm. libertarian candidates or libertarian sympathizing candidates into public office at kind of whatever level and with yeah, success and, and with success, with a lot of success. And so, um, you know, I always feel like the Democrats are two, always two steps behind the Republicans. And maybe that, maybe that's shifting right now. We're definitely seeing a really kind of like titanic shift at this moment. But um, about, I guess, you know, a couple, three, four or five years ago, you saw Democrats getting hip to the fact that these Republicans were stacking these state legislatures and flipping them. And, and we saw that. And then we saw an effort to really make sure that the Republican candidates were really conservative. And now, as Democrats are trying to just get their folks in there, the, Repo the Republicans have gone even more extreme. And so Cliff Maloney and the Young Americans for Liberty is part of an effort to turn every conservative in these state legislatures into every Republican into serious, serious libertarians who want to cut, cut, cut state budgets, like just no minuscule, minuscule budgets. Um, it's so kind of like kind of like the Grover Norquist, like drown the baby in the bathtub analogy for how he wants to basically murder yeah, government yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. And, their, and their job is to get in there and then just sort of terrorize the other conservatives and the other Republicans with, you know, with threats. 
so that they too will start to follow this no, you know, these small budgets and minuscule social safety networks and, you know, social safety nets and, and whatnot. With the idea that, that, that the bigger that they get, then the more power they have and then they sort of take over. And, and they were doing that in a very, and, that, and so Cliff's Young Americans for Liberty and Cliff's group were choosing, actually choosing candidates and going out in various states and, and door knocking for these candidates and were, and producing literature for these candidates and essentially like deciding who they wanted to get into the state legislature. And in some cases, it's somewhat in 2016 and then 2018, they were really successful. So before we move on to Candace, uh, I want to talk about Mobilize the Message, which is another branch of cliff's um you know i guess business enterprises or or uh, you know his conservative dealings he started yeah. a, a for-profit company of which yeah. he is still the ceo called mobilize the message yeah. which what goes out and activates on behalf of candidates who hire this company to basically yeah because he's so good because what he did with young americans for liberty was create an, an entire door knocking a kind of a a, 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 a staff he could staff up really quickly with door knockers train them how to door knock and then send them out there and so now he and he did that for this young this nonprofit young americans for liberty that he led and then he also started this nonprofit where he could do it for people like marjorie taylor green who he worked for and the thing that i think is important the distinction to make here is that and this is something i really i saw was that if you're a democrat and you start making a lot of money on the side when you know when you're in, when you're in political realm and you start making a lot of money on the side that's really frowned upon when you're a young conservative and you figure out ways to make money on the side even ways that can seem pretty unethical or very borderline they, they love it because it shows you to be industrious and it shows you to be entrepreneurial and it's a it's a point of pride the donors are looking at him and they're saying oh look at cliff look at him cashing How in smart, you know that's really smart <laughs> yeah right um, so Candace, Candace Owens, I always want to say Candace Parker and it's, but it's Candace Owens. Uh, <laughs> she meets Charlie Kirk, uh, of course in Palm Spring or in, um, what's it called? Palm Beach, uh, Florida Palm Beach, yeah. at the Breakers in 2017 at something called Restoration Weekend. Can you what is Restoration Weekend? So Restoration Weekend is one of the um, the big events. So I mean, these guys have events all the time. These folks, these the conservative movement is basically a movement of people who go from one conference to the next, and um, you know, gather, party, eat, drink, talk politics. They're like a lot of these donors are just kind of political hobbyists. So this is how they spend their time, right? They don't have a lot of them are independently wealthy, or they have these companies that they don't have to do a lot of work for. So this is what they do in their spare time. You know, of course, protecting their own interests, but pretending that they're doing this for the better of the country. But anyway, so Restoration Weekend is like one of these events that all the donors go to and they stay at the breakers and they eat really good food and they listen to speakers who spout, you know, crazy, you know, do conservative doctrine that turns them on. And then they and then these newbies kind of filter in and out and they discover new blood. And so this is where Charlie meets Candace because Charlie has been introduced to the restoration uh, this this weekend by uh, one of the one of his big donors who brings him along. She's so excited to show him off. She's bringing him around. And in the beginning, people who met him thought like, why is she so excited about this guy? And then of course they start to hear him speak and they too get excited and they're bringing him, you know, showing him around. But the year that Charlie meets Candace, it's he's now kind of established and and 
Candace is the one who is arrives on the scene and everyone goes, ooh, you know, look at her. Well, she's a young African-American woman, what, originally from Connecticut? Mm-hmm. And like, what is her, can you give a kind of a thumbnail of her background? Yeah, I mean, she's a, she comes from a really very poor family uh, in, in Stamford, Connecticut, which is a kind of rough and tumble place, the downtown. And she has, uh, she, but but in, in I guess around eight or nine, she moves in with her grandparents, and her grandfather is owns a dry cleaner. He's very religious, and they uh, they raise her in a in a I think predominantly white, very modest neighborhood, and she, um, you know, that's that's how she grows up. So he's a Democrat, but he's very religious. Her grandfather, who's an important, very important figure in her life, so she has that sort of traditional conservatism that you often see in the black community, but her parents are Democrats. And she has a kind of monumental incident that happens to her in high school. She receives a phone call one day uh, and several young men scream these really horrible racial epithets at her. And she ends up telling somebody at the school that this happened and they do an investigation and they find out who the kids are and they, and they, this gets blown up in the media and the NWACP gets involved, and Candace Owens ends up feeling like these boys, who in her estimation had just done something stupid, weren't evil racists, were really dragged through the mud, and then she feels like, this is her, you know, her recounting, and she feels like she's been taken advantage of by this left-wing group, which uses her to push its prominence in this town and in, you know, in, in Connecticut. And that's, and, and, it, and she says that during this period, the entire town is just gossiping about whether or not she had lied or not. And it just ends up being a horrible experience. And she has to go back to school. And when she goes back to school, she has a bodyguard that follows her around. And she keeps this, this, this incident it really seems like it was very traumatic for her. And she said that because of it, she had an eating disorder and she went to college and she dropped out of college. And then she kind of bumbles around and tries to figure out what she wants to do. She wants to be famous. That's her, you know, she's one of these people that just decides they want to be famous. And she tries different ways to do it. And eventually she realizes that she can do this by being a black conservative. And this story of what happened to her when she was in high school becomes her origin story of how she was first attracted or how she was first turned off by Democrats and looking for new solutions. Okay, so I think a lot of people would look at somebody like Candace Owens and see someone who is an opportunist who, like you say, just wants to be famous, figured out that there's a niche and has decided to fill this niche regardless of print like principle just to get fame and money you know it's kind of like whatever works but the the way that you're depicting her and the history that you're telling of her uh personal life and personal politics she comes by like your take on it having reported this out is that she comes by her conservatism authentically she's authentically politically conservative you don't think that she's just like you know saying look there's this there's a lot of open space here there's not a lot of black conservatives who are willing to go on on camera and sort of stump for this stuff. Uh, do you know? Do you know what I'm getting at? Like, how yeah, much- I do. I I think she's a person who wanted to be famous, and I think she was going to do whatever she needed to do to get famous. And she's smart, and she's savvy, and she poked around and tried different things. And when she realized that being a black conservative could give her a ton of mileage, an amazing amount of mileage, she went down that route. Then she needed an origin story. 
So she tells, tells an origin story, and the origin story is true. This did happen to her. I, I, I have documentation that this happened to her. If she had decided to go another route, she probably would have a different origin story, right? That's people work backwards, right? You know, they start and they go back, you know, so that's what So that's it's what So it's not authentic. I mean, it's authentic in the sense that, like, I think that she felt really let down by the NWACP. And I think that when she when you see what happened, I could see how a young woman would feel really taken advantage of by them. So I think that's a true thing. Now, does that end up making you a conservative? Well, it might if you are Candace Owens. If you're somebody else, you could go and decide you're going to transform the NWACP, you know? Right. So that's, that brings me to my next line of questioning, you know, because it's an area of endless fascination for me. Uh, with regard to politics is how people's politics form. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could look at myself. I tend to lean more uh, progressive. I was raised by moderate conservatives in Midwestern conservative suburbs. I guess I was reacting against that. You know, I try to like sort of dissect it in my own self. Yeah. But like, do you have any sense having done all this reporting of like, how do these, how do people's politics form? How do young people are there common threads that you found that cause people to gravitate towards conservatism? Yeah, I mean, so with the young white men that I found that that I spend time with, the the common thread that I saw with them and with their followers is resentment. I think that it's really, you know, I I, I, I it's it's not complicated. It's actually pretty simple. This replacement theory, this idea is very central to how a lot of young conservatives get to their conservatism out of anxiety and fear about being replaced by people of color, by people from other countries, by people of different, you know, with different, you know, you know, members of the LGBTQ community, you know, that this kind of idea of being a straight white male is going to really set you back in this new world order and that that creates fear and anxiety. And that's very real fear and anxiety. And that's the thing I saw. It's not a made up and, you know, whether it's so whether it's there's reason for anxiety is a is a question, but the fact that there is this intense anxiety is real. So that's how you I think a lot of these young white guys become conservative. For a lot of the young women, I you see guys turn more at least in my in in my experience, it's more you're more likely to see a a, a young person from a liberal family who turns to become conservative, that is a white male thing that I saw happen. With conservative young women, they often came up through, they really were conservative and they were, a lot of their religion, a lot of their belief system is faith-based and they buy into conservatism and they buy into that power structure and they work through that power structure and they learn how to work through it. And that's how you find them taking positions that can seem very anti-feminist or anti-woman or even misogynistic because they have bought into this other system and they'll stay with it. But yeah, I, I think that, so that's, that's it. I think the switchers tended to be, tend to be white males and young women, I think, are more likely to come up through their, to, to sort of follow their family politics. Okay. And a lot of homeschooled kids too. You know, yeah, a lot of homeschooled kids. That's a common A lot theory. of them, yeah. So I want to talk about money because money is really at the heart of all of this <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. And I was really fascinated to read about the relationships. Uh, as an example, uh, you know, Charlie Kirk was taken in not only by Bill Montgomery, who sort of, you know, helped him get his beginnings, driving him around to all of these 
you know, what conferences and tea parties and whatever in the suburban Chicago area and the Midwestern suburbs. But then there is a couple and uh, I believe it's Lee and Allie Hanley. Is that the couple, mm -hmm. the, the billionaires yeah. or the super millionaires who really, uh, you know, took Charlie under their wing, saw talent in him and invested in him. Uh, yeah. The money flow with all of these people is very fascinating. The big money people in conservative circles who just basically have a, you know, blank checks to hand out and who bankroll these things and keep them going. Can you talk just a little bit, I guess as an example to illustrate about the way that money found its way to Charlie Kirk and how that's helped him to become who he is currently? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this really goes back to what I was talking about before about the culture of this conservative movement culture, which really values cultivating young people. And as an aside, one reason that you have that, there are many reasons why I think that exists. And, but one of the reasons is that we think of young people as being liberal and being de by default Democrats. So uh, people like the Hanleys are looking at, or the Bradleys or you know, any number of these big donors that, give, that gave to Charlie and continue to give to Charlie, they're always concerned about young people already being liberal and then arriving on these college campuses and getting even more liberal through these crazy nut job lefty radicals right and when you are a young conservative and you are trying to get money you often play up you you make it a central part of your ask to create fear and anxiety um in older donors about what is going on on college campuses so that's one key thing that there and, and I had donors talk tell me this outright they said the the donor movement among young republicans young conservatives is the structure is based around an an uh, an in a culture war industry a literally an industry of creating this kind of anxiety online in you know these Repo conservative newspapers through conversations, but just to create this constant sense that these college campuses are completely out of control. Now, there is some intolerance on college campuses, and that's a that's a whole other conversation, but the level to which these people think it exists, and even the level to which a lot of us are led to believe it exists, is not true. But that is one big way, so that's one thing, That's that's why one of the reasons why these donors, when they find a young person that they think is going to go and recruit on college campuses and talk to young people and convert them, it's like, yes, give him money, give him money. Now, Charlie is so dynamic and he is so driven and so um, good with older people. And it's, it, I can't really entirely explain it. It's just, it just is. It's like, how do you explain why Trump is so dynamic? Like, he just is. Who knows? It's just the way he is. Like, people find him alluring right same thing with charlie these donors found him so alluring and so exciting and so he just attracted them and then his message was these socialists on college campuses are coming for your grandkids i'm gonna stop them and that's a pretty good pitch <laughs> they opened their wallets and they were like you know well charlie has chutzpah charlie has chutzpah he approaches i'm gonna get the you're going to have to help me with the storyline, but he approaches some big money donor, I want to say at the Republican National Convention. 
Yeah, uh, Foster Freeze. Yeah. Foster Freeze. Okay, Foster Freeze was another one of his. Yeah, 2012, he goes, he and Bill Montgomery decide to get on a plane and go to the Republican National Convention, which was taking, which is in uh, Florida. And they had no idea that you needed tickets in advance. They were, that was how kind of hapless and off the cuff this was. And they arrive and they realize that they need to get ticket. They need to get in and they convince somebody who's leaving to give them their ticket and they get in. And while they were on the plane, Charlie was reviewing the, like the 10, 15 wealthiest Republican donors and looking at pictures of them and trying to remember what they looked like and what their names were and then hit the floor at the Republican National Convention looking for these people and found Foster Freeze, very generous donor, multimillionaire, and finds him and corners him in a stairwell and gives him his three-minute pitch. I'm Charlie Kirk. I want to, you know, I want to do what MoveOn.org did, what Obama did for uh, young people, but I want to do it for conservatives and I need money. And the guy sent him a $10,000 check. And that was the beginning. And then Foster Freeze became, has given Turning Point uh, millions. Millions of dollars. He's like, Charlie Kirk has gotten ri- like very rich from this. He's gotten very rich from this. You can get very, very rich from this type of thing if you're a Republican. Yeah, it's a, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's like that savvy. I, I, you, you have to wonder, like if you have a natural inclination to embrace this particular political ideology, and then you find yourself at the nexus of huge money and political ideology. It's got to, I imagine it had to help them cement their belief system. <laughs> it's very, it's very intoxicating. Yeah. And I had a, I have to tell you that I was about two years into reporting on Charlie Kirk. I was talking to a journalist friend of mine who writes about politics and has been doing it for years. And he said to me, Charlie's about to get very rich. Just watch. correct and then charlie got really rich and i'll tell you another story that might be interesting i have a friend and i'll keep the details uh uh, you know i'll leave out the details but she in this most recent uh election she went and she campaigned for somebody and she stayed in this kind of fleabag hotel and she was told i she you know i she flew to this locale and she was told we have to have you stay in this hotel because it's a unionized hotel and we're democrats and we are supported by unions and we can't you can't stay in the fancy hotel this was a city with a lot of really nice hotels and i said to her if you were a republican you'd be staying in that nice hotel right Of course. Right. I said, this is the price you pay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, let's give, I want to give listeners uh, a sense of timeline because I think it's important. You know, all of the lives that you are depicting in this book, the people, the central players in the book that you're following got their beginnings prior, it, it got their beginnings in conservative politics in whatever iteration prior to 2016, correct? Yeah, I, they st- the folks I was following, Candace Owens started a little bit later, but the, the folks that, the young people that I followed really started in, I mean, Charlie started in 2012, and that's, that's when um, Cliff started to get excited about politics. It was, they were reacting to this new wave, this wave of young people that we see now is really a reaction to Obama. Well, that's what I, that's what I keep saying to friends of mine, you know, is that I, I think I've said it on this show, I, how badly I underestimated how much Obama freaked certain people out 
Yeah. Like his presidency, I, mean, I was like, oh, this is wonderful. Look at America making great progress and like the change we needed and all this kind of stuff. And I, I underestimated the degree to which he scared the shit out of a lot of people. Really, there's so much fear. And I think, oh, you know who I was talking to is I was talking to A.M. Holmes, who wrote yeah. a, fi a fictionalized book, which you, you know, she wrote a novel that I, I would recommend to you because it's called The Unfolding. And it, okay. it, it, it depicts the big money conservatives who get together in the wake of Obama's victory in 2008 and basically f feel a sense of existential terror and say, we've got to fix this. Like it, the book opens yeah. at the Biltmore in Phoenix at the John McCain election viewing party. So you oh, would, gosh, I think you would feel gotta, right at home. I got to read this. Yeah, you would feel right at home. So I was talking with her. I think that was the context that brought me to this, this feeling of just like, wow, I really had it wrong. I thought most people were like happy about it. And I, a lot of people were, maybe most people were, but some people were decidedly not. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the thing is that there, what I really saw and cause Charlie came out of Chicago and his first, his first lower level donors came out of Chicago and that tea party movement came out of Chicago and it wasn't just fear. They really, really, really hated Obama and particularly those donors in Chicago. And I think that what they hated about him and what other other Republicans hated about him, these power players, these power brokers, they hated that this guy was so confident and so smart and so, um, you know, you know, was incredible orator and didn't play party politics the old way. And it was his confidence and like he was so attractive and he was it that just drove them to distraction. You know, like if he'd been scrappy or like, you know, rough around the edges, I think they would have not hated him as much. But the fact that he was just like he was more elite than any of them. And I think that killed them. Yeah. Well, no, it's funny you say Charlie, you, you mentioned that Charlie, for as much as he openly loathes Obama, also in, in a way has a lot of reverence for his political acumen. He did. He does. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to, as a, like, as a, as a casual observer, but as somebody who really likes to follow politics, it's hard to look at the field and see anybody who is a more naturally gifted politician in our time than Barack Obama, whatever your political persuasion, right? As a pure performer yeah. on the political stage, the guy is peerless. He, you know, and I think, I think he's a really, I, th I think he, it, sadly he and he and Trump are really kind of fabulous foils because both of them really lock into something very fundamental about this country. And they really lock into core emotions that Americans have. Mm. And Obama locks into our sort of better self, our better, you know, our, our, our highest aspirations for who we are and what we can become. And Trump locks in just as powerfully to the basest, most grotesque inclinations of this country. Yeah, I agree. And I think it, it reminds me of something David Axelrod, uh, you know, the Obama campaign chief, yeah. once said about presidential politics and how when the pendulum swings, we tend to get a president who is like the mirror image or the antithesis of the president who preceded him or her. Yeah. And if you think about Obama and Trump in that succession, that's pretty accurate. And then if you think about Trump to Biden in some ways, that's pretty I know, accurate. I just was thinking it's a really, it's really true. So, I mean, and, well, I was just going to say, if, if Biden, yeah. if, let's say Biden wins a second term, assuming he runs and, you know, goes on to win, 
the next president you would think would be a next gen youth youthful president of some stripe right i mean i don't know it's yeah. if you're going to use that to, to predict mm -hmm. it would probably be the case yeah. but Please, if you had something uh, else to say along these lines, I kind of interrupted you. No, no, no. I, I, I just, I just, a to I mean, it's really an interesting thing to think about. And I, I've thought so much about the way that the Biden folks played that election and that race and how he was off the, off the map. And he was, you know, I, I would, I remember getting kind of frustrated with him. He's in his basement. I thought that's a terrible visual. Why do they, why, but they stuck with it. And one thing, I think Axelrod or one of these other Democratic um, uh, 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 advisors had, had, had one said, or I think believes is that you, you gotta stick with a plan. Like once you have a plan, you gotta stick with it. And when he was, he was talking about the Obama campaign. And if you, if you switch midway, you just lose it. And they stuck with this idea that he was gonna be the low key candidate. And it worked. He was a foil and, and, and voters went, okay, I just much prefer that than this guy who is all over the place and chaotic and scaring the hell out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, by, by kind of laying low that made the election a referendum on Trump. I mean, right. That's kind of the, yeah, it's kind of what you wanted to have him out there yeah. sort of hoisting himself up, but, um, yeah. and, 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 and Carrie Hobbs, by the way, in Arizona, anyone who's paying attention to Arizona, Carrie Hobbs basically did the same thing with Carrie Lake. Yeah, Katie Hobbs, you mean? Yeah, she. Katie Hobbs. I'm sorry, Katie Hobbs she... is is basically she wouldn't debate her. Right. right. And she isn't the most impressive candidate at, at, by it really is not, and she just let Carrie Lake scare the heck out of voters and just let her do her thing. Yeah. And people said, not that, not that. Yep. A lot of like there was a lot of hand wringing over Katie Hobbs declining to debate mm -hmm. uh, Carrie Lake, but what I like the the take that I read somewhere that I found persuasive is that she basically said like, how do you have a good faith debate with somebody who is operating so clearly in bad faith? Like if you've got somebody yeah. who's got no fidelity to facts and the truth and who's one of these election denying people, what's the point? And she essentially rolled the dice on the fact that she was treating Arizona voters like an adult, like, okay, it's, it's her or it's me. Make your call. If you want that, vote for her. And she won. Yeah. And so and she won. Yeah. You know, thank goodness. Cause I feel like it seems to me that Carrie Lake is gonna be Donald Trump's running mate. Um that that feels like what's happening to me. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe the fact that she lost the governorship has hurt her chances, but she's you know, she's a reality television star. <laughs> uh, yeah. she's you know, yeah. he recognizes that and she's got the she's got the camera filters down, you know. She's got that whole thing down. So <laughs> um but I, I want to talk to you about your own politics and just the mechanics of being a reporter on the ground, covering people with whom you disagree and might even find uh, offensive or mm -hmm. like, how do you manage the, how did you manage the emotional content of that part of it? Did it ever intrude or were you able to sort of compartmentalize? Well, when I first started reporting on these young people, I was really impressed with their organizing acumen. So I went in with a kind of agnostic sense of the process, not the politics. And that's what I that's what I talked to them about. And I was always very honest. I never lied to them about my own politics. And I think that was actually one of the reasons why they let me in so deeply, because I, they trusted me. I was trustworthy, um, even though they're <laughs> proven not to be. But um but once I got go and, and, and so I would I would go to these 
you know, like I would stick to process. And when we, and, and I remember doing a tour with Tyler Bauer who runs, who's like the under, you know, actually was a big, big, big proponent of Carrie Lakes and one of the people that pushed her out there so much. But I, I did, I did toured his headquarters, the Turning Point USA headquarters for hours and hours and hours and was fascinated by him and by his energy and his ambition and his drive. And I just kept it agnostic. But as they got, and I would go to the conferences and I would be able to do a day or two and then I would just have to go back to the hotel and not like leave the hotel room for hours and then I would come back to Brooklyn and I would just feel for a day or two completely disgusting. <laughs> but when I was like in it, I could keep it going. But I will say that once after the Trump, ele- after this 2018 and um, I'm sorry, I'm like getting all my, after 2020, and the deny and the and the the election denying and then the insurrection these folks went they just jumped the shark and they went from having a views i really didn't agree with and being a little bit more harsher about them to just being completely insane and hostile and scary and that was when i i couldn't really hold back anymore but in the beginning my my thinking was my answer always to like things that they were saying that I found disgusting or it was, tell me more. Why do you think that? How did you get there? That was what I would, I just felt like my, I, I felt like I had the reader on my, you know, on my shoulder and I was just trying to get this person to explain who they were and what they believed in because if I couldn't, if I could do that, then, then we could help <laughs> stop people like this, you know? But I needed to, I needed to tell people who they were and what they were doing. Mm. So, You know, this was, I think, part of what I was, or the core of what I was trying to get to earlier when I asked you to talk a little bit about timeline, you know, is that these people started uh, operating in conservative politics prior to 2016, prior to the election of Donald Trump. And it seems obvious to me that Trump foregrounded a lot of what I think people like you and me might say we have sensed like roiling in the conservative movement for a long time. You know, he yeah. made it permissible to sort of say the quiet part out loud. Um, there's something I had written down, like being offensive. I'm quoting your book now. Being offensive was yeah. something you no longer had to apologize for. It was cunning and cool. It was sticky. It drove engagement. And you sort of had a ringside seat, as you were just saying watching how these people kind of developed in their careers as the money started to really come in, their profiles were raised. The Republicans from 2016 to 2018 had total control of the government. So they were the, they were in charge. Uh, Can you just talk a little bit about how you saw that affect them? You know, you kind of have described it a little bit, but that had a big impact. Like Trump winning and the kind of politics that he bandies about you know, it really did kind of warp what I have understood as like traditional conservative politics, you know, that's no longer, you know, or it really got, get marginalized. Yeah. And I mean, remember that after, um, I mean, after Obama 
won. I think it. I. I guess it was the second. His second win, or it might have been his first. There, the the famous autopsy, the Republican Party autopsy on what had happened and why Obama had come to power. And there was an understanding that the Republicans were going to lose, were losing, but were, we didn't really have voters of color, and we're going to start to look very alien to a lot of the country, and that they needed to really reframe who they were and how they thought about their politicking. And the move was to be more inclusive. And so it was so odd that this was what, what the end result, you know, this was where the party was supposed to go, and then Trump got elected. So I just, I just want to say that, like, it, it didn't look like the party. I mean, we knew a lot of the nastiness and we knew the Tea Party and we knew, but, but we also knew that the actual party establishment was considering maybe being more inclusive. Then Trump arrives and that's like thrown out the window. And once that got thrown out the window, the, the folks that, that, that I was watching were just like, they just kind of creeped towards it and you saw it slowly, slowly, slowly. And then it just got, they got more and more and more emboldened. And when I was interviewing them, they were like, I would interview people. And one of the people that was, uh, works for Charlie Kirk, who was one of my biggest, best sources. I, I had a conversation with him in 2018 about abortion, about reproductive rights. And I'll never forget, we were at a, a, a we were at a CPAC and we were on the balcony of this party and we were both drinking beers and we were talking about what my views on reproductive rights and his. And we didn't agree, but we were having this like, I can see where you're coming from conversation. And that same guy after the insurrection or no, after the election and he starts spouting, like they're spouting all this election denying stuff. I had him on the phone and I said, he said, oh, I guess I'm starting to sound like, you know, so you can see the kind of relationship I had with this person. And he said, oh, I guess I'm starting to sound like one of those tinfoil hat people. And I said, yeah, you kind of are. And that was the first time that I ever, I literally in all of my reporting on these people that I really passed judgment on a view and he got quiet and he shut down and that was it. That was it. That was it. He turned to the dark side. He'd gotten dirt. He wasn't, it was like he had gone off the off the map, dark side, dirty, along with them, totally distanced themselves from reality. And I was, I was shut out. Mm. Well, and you know, all of these people, Charlie, Candace, Cliff, were to greater and lesser extents embraced by the Republican establishment in the wake of Trump's you know, election in 2016, not only in the, the, the shadows, you know, where the money is flowing from the billionaire class and the millionaire class into their coffers, but also by the Trump administration itself, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, Charlie had a, had a, had a, a couch in the White House, in the West Wing that, 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 you know, one of the, one of Trump's uh, employees said had his name on it, you know, it was Charlie's couch. And I was talking to a Democratic operative who said when Clinton was in office, uh, he didn't have a couch named after him, that that kind of access was unbelievable to him. To have that youth vote. And he was also friends with Don Jr. Like they were traipsing around the country. He's very tight with Don Jr. Don Jr. Yeah, he continues to be very tight with Don Jr. Candace also was embraced. Yes, Candace, Candace and uh, yeah. The, I, I mean, uh, Obama loves, I'm not Obama, um, Trump loves Candace. Trump loves Candace. I mean, now they're having the issues, but you know, Candace's love, you know, Candace loves you and then she hates you. Right. And she married the guy who founded Parlor? No, no, he didn't found he didn't 
no, he is a British guy who went to Oxford, and uh, his father is called Copper King. His father's a copper trader and a multi-millionaire, billionaire perhaps. She married him. Okay. And uh, and then he and then he uh, he became CEO of Parlor as you know, like as one does. As one exactly. <laughs> this is how they, this is how this world works because Parlor was run by one of the big um, Trump donors. So you know it was owned by one of the big Trump donors and they're all friends. And so I, I don't know, they had dinner one night and he said, Oh, I'll take it over. That's I think it. probably what ended up happening was he dumped a lot of money into it. That's really how he became CEO. I don't know that, but I'm assuming. So, uh, I'm going to read another quote from your book. Okay. And it comes towards the end. Uh, you say, quote, what my years of reporting taught me was that socialist fearing right wingers are doing a better job of acting like, quote, collectivists than their counterparts on the left. Like that was a big takeaway for you. And I'm wondering in light, uh, you know, because it's, it's funny when I was looking at the calendar, um, you know, I'm scheduling these interviews for this show. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, damn, I wish I could have talked to Kyle, pr you know, prior to the election. This was like weeks ago. It was before yeah, the election. Yeah. I was like, I just didn't have the time to read the book and do all the prep yeah, and everything. Yeah. So I was so I was like, OK, well, you know, we'll talk afterwards. And it's actually a stroke of luck that we are talking after the 2022 midterms because of the unexpectedly strong performance by Democrats, which you know I think has been reported was driven in large part by the youth vote. In swing so, states, the youth vote in, in swing yeah, states. In swing states, so I'm curious to, like how has this, has this caused you to recalibrate? No, um, no, as is the case, right? Like I'm seeing this and other people are seeing it, right? People are seeing this in they we this is a known problem. And there is there are a lot of of um of young youth groups on the left that are popping up and they're working really hard to get support and there are now um a growing number of organizations I mean as we speak that are developing that are trying to bring these these groups together bringing young grassroots groups together so that they, they unify, they work together. So that uh, Georgia has a coalition and Arizona has a coalition. And that's really important because those are two states that we are seeing doing, you know, doing really well, um, getting not in all cases, Georgia, but, you know, getting Democratic voters to, to vote. But there's a movement underfoot. And so this for people who are doing this kind of work of trying to get money for these grassroots groups and to get elders to really think of them as part of the ecosystem, this is such a good thing because it shows that you do have to invest. And when you do invest, they come out for you. Well, there's uh, what's his name? Tom Steyer is yes. one of the, one of the yes. bigger money guys on the left. He, he's kind of he's kind of fu functioning in a, in a way not dissimilar to the the Palm Beach billionaires on the right, you know, he's yeah, funding, exactly. what is it called? Next Gen or? Next Gen. And it's a great organization. And he, I, you know, he, it's funny that you said that. Cause I, I really want to meet him. I need to, I don't know him personally and I need to get, I need to get to, I really want to talk to him, but, um, yeah, so it, I'm really hopeful. I'm really excited about this, um, this understanding that, that that young voters can bring it home for 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 the party and and also this is the thing that I didn't quite you know that's been relatively new and that I think is I wouldn't have seen it while I was doing my reporting because Biden had wasn't even president yet but Biden has really for all of his old ageness and you know he was very connected to young voters think about it right. 
supports legalizing marijuana, student debt, environment. He's heard them. He's listened to them. He's pushed their agenda and he's talked to them. He speaks to them. You know, he will give speeches where he will talk to young people. And yeah. I don't think that, I think we may have underestimated how much he actually has delivered for young people and they know it. Yeah, I think I think Joe Biden in general is underestimated. Yeah, me too. And I think that's actually to his advantage. I think that's it's it's borne out by this midterm election. Yeah, uh, he definitely has his faults. You know, like as a political performer, he's the gaff machine, and he's older, yeah. and he, you know, he he has the stutter. You know, all these different things that we've heard reported on him. But you look at his legislative record in his first two years with razor thin congressional majorities. It stacks up. It stacks up favorably. And then, you know, he's positioned himself, you know, if his health uh, stays good, um, you know, that uh, he should be able to have a decent record to run on and an opposition to run against that I think reflects on him favorably. So I don't know, like I, I'm I'm of the political left, so my fingers are crossed. And I'm also somebody who is interested in knowing more about how all these things work. And your book um, really helped me you know, to, to kind of draw into focus, just like how politics works, but in particular, how politics works on the right. Yeah. And, you know, how, like what we're up against, (laughs) you know, on the political left and, and what the future might hold. And I think, you know, especially in the context of this recent midterm and in the context of 2024, it makes sense to me that the youth vote would be more activated than ever because the, the, consequences of elections are so existential in particular for young people yeah you know and i think young people i think young people know it this is about not only about the future but it's about whether or not there is a future (laughs) well i gotta tell you something i had a conversation with my daughter who's about to go to college about having children and it it just came it was an off-the-cuff conversation and she said mom i don't know if i'm gonna have children and i said well why not and she said because I don't know if this planet is going to be here. Right. And I, it's a bummer. I was just like t- so taken aback that I knew this. I mean, I've reported on this. I know young people feel this in this way, but have your daughter tell you that she doesn't know if she wants to have kids because she doesn't know if the, you know, gl- the earth is going to blow up. I mean, to live with that kind of, ang- that, that's this kind of, I mean, the, this is a whole other, the kind of anxiety that young people live with right now is just off the charts. That's fair. Yeah. And I think it's fueling them and driving them. To yeah, it's fueling them to to maybe take the, the lead. We need them to lead, you know, because I think that the that, that's probably my deepest frustration with older generations uh, who don't see it, you know, who don't see the threat or don't care about it. You know, that's a pretty dark worldview. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm hopeful that the young people can lead us out of the darkness, you know, or help to lead us out of the darkness. And I, the last thing I'm going to ask just mm-hmm. for fun. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know what? I, we actually should cover this. So I'm going to cover this and then we're going to have some fun, but okay. you know, there is kind of a dramatic arc to each of these stories that you're telling about these people. Charlie Kirk, by the end of your book, closer to the present day, has, as you depict them, or as you depict him, become self-absorbed, fame-obsessed. 
He's got an entourage around him. He's less accessible to you than he was previously when he was more of, you know, an earnest, no-name kid with conservative values, right? I mean, he's mm -hmm. really kind of yeah. drank his own Kool-Aid at this point. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's flown too close to the sun. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he's like, he's, you know, that's where he is now. He's just kind of like, he's kind of trying to become the next Rush Limbaugh. Yes, and he, he may well. Okay. I don't see and then, that. And I think I, I'm not clear whether he will run for president at some point, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past him. And then Cliff Maloney, who you have spoken of with some degree of fondness, you know, uh, he wound up getting charged with uh, sexual assault. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah, he's, he's got a sexual assault case from high, from college. That's um, uh, that he's been char he's been charged. He's waiting for trial at this. I, at this point and then uh he had a, a, a slew of of allegations against him when he was when he was running young americans for liberty and he eventually left and uh that happened while in the midst of, of my following his organization and i have to be honest with you and this was an interesting thing for me to learn about folks who are accused of sexual assault i had no idea this was going on and i write about how he kept um me when i was with him always with a public relations person and always you know he had a very i had a good i mean like we talked a lot and stuff but he was very careful about what i saw and i didn't quite i i, I chalked it up to just being controlling and then of course after i learned all of these allegations i just couldn't help wonder if he just wanted to make sure that i didn't hear them from the young women before <laughs> before they landed on facebook and it was it was not just him it was like a kind of a culture of misogyny yeah the young americans for liberty these women came out in just droves to say that the culture was really misogynistic and that it was you know it's actually fascinating because what it was was they were um they said that the culture was essentially libertarian like and there was something sort of libertine about it but in a very kind of misogynistic way there was this sense that guys could take whatever they wanted and that guys could do whatever they wanted and that the, if women wanted to stop them then they should um it's everything's a marketplace so they should you know they should figure out how to stop them or they should leave and go work somewhere else or you know, it was, it was an interesting example of what it really means if you don't believe in 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 in, in a, a protective government or protective bodies or protective social safety nets. You know, it means that if you're in an organization and there's harassment, that there's a kind of if you're following the ideology, you take care of it yourself. Hmm. I got to say, it was one of the least surprising things to learn is that the Young Americans for Liberty. Yeah had a frat boy culture of misogyny yeah. and abuse. It seems yeah. like, yeah. it seems like, of course, you know, that's yeah. going to pop up. And then, you know, Candace, we've talked about, you know, her marriage to this guy who now runs Parlor, but she is a media, she has a media enterprise in her own right, right? Oh God. I mean, I, she is a very wealthy woman now. Yeah. And just like what, she's like the, what, what do you think her future holds? I'm not sure. I think she, I, I'm not sure. I mean, growing her media empire, probably just growing the empire. And then I don't know if she'll run for something. Hmm. Okay. So now to the fun part. Of the three, who, if you had to place a wager, has the most potential to be like an Anakin Skywalker figure who you can like pull back from the dark side? <laughs> Do any of them, are any of them, could you foresee any of them 
retreating from the ideology that they're into like i mean candace candace well if if it if it turns out to be she could she would she could but she won't because the left hates her and will never forgive her but you think she you think she has the most potential yeah yeah okay well i've loved talking with you i really enjoyed this book i feel like it like i said shines a light into the machinery and lets people see how things actually work in politics, which I don't get enough of in the context of like everyday news and the Twitter scroll and everything. So this is like a nice deep dive into parts of the world that I've been fascinated about for a long time, but didn't know enough about. So I really appreciate it and I appreciate the time. Well, thank you so much. This was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. All right, everybody, that is my conversation with Kyle Spencer, author of the new book, Raising Them Right. The Untold Story of America's Ultra-Conservative Youth Movement and its Plot for Power, it is available now from Echo Books. You can find Kyle on the internet at kylespencerjournalist.com, and you can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Kyle Y. Spencer. One more time, the book is called Raising Them Right, available from Echo. Go get your copy right away. Read it. Learn a few things feel terrified, curl up into the fetal position, feel activated, whatever it is. The Other People podcast is offered freely. If you want to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. If you want to email me, if you have feedback or you want to tell me a story, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. The Other People Podcast has its own app. Are you aware of this? It is free. It is available wherever you get your apps. It's an excellent way to listen. The Other People YouTube channel, now featuring video of these episodes, is out there. It's waiting for you. Search for it by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and when you get to the channel, subscribe. Likewise, go check out the other people TikTok presence and follow other people on TikTok. If you want to read my novel, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there. It's waiting for you. So go check that out if it's of interest. Otherwise, I think think I've, I've touched every base. I think we're good. Next week on the program, I'm going to be in conversation with Emily Pfeiffer, author of a new memoir called The Running Body, which is excellent. And I hope you have a good Thanksgiving. Maybe you're listening in transit. Maybe you're listening during Thanksgiving dinner to tune out your family. What about that? This podcast has multiple uses. It's user-friendly. It's versatile. And I appreciate you tuning in. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody. I will talk to you next week. 